Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Chris Smith, Kat Arney, Christina Scott, and Mira Senthalingam, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, we find out why some people are genetically predisposed to develop AIDS. What they found when they studied these people's mitochondrial DNA was that there were certain genetic markers that were linked with people developing the disease much more quickly and other people developing the disease much more slowly. Why elephants live shorter lives in zoos than in the wild. And the African elephants in the National Park lived for around an average of 56 years. But African elephants in the zoos only made it to an average of 17 years old. And we know this is because adults are dying younger, because the death rates are actually similar among baby elephants across the two different populations. And how Nigeria seem to have lost a satellite. So now what's happened is that the Nigerian government has spent 240 million US dollars on the satellite and it was supposed to work for 15 years. Unfortunately, it went down after 18 months. Plus, how a genetic test could tell you which breast cancer treatment to have, how Giardia bugs wear genetic disguises and why dogs feel envy. That's all on the way. Scientists have discovered that there's a link between the genes that you carry and how long it takes for you following infection with HIV to develop AIDS. Now, AIDS occurs when HIV causes the immune system to fail, and it can take a variable length of time, anything from 10 to 20 years. And so a group of researchers in America, led by Stephen O'Brien, and he's based at the National Cancer Institute, grabbed hold of 1,833 blood samples from patients from the 1980s and the early 90s. And this is when AIDS first came on the scene. And in other words, there weren't very many drugs to treat people, and so they were able to match up the DNA in those blood samples with how long it took people following HIV HIV infection to develop some of the symptoms of AIDS. In other words, when their immune systems failed and they began to succumb to other kinds of uh, opportunistic infections, as they're called. A really interesting pattern emerged because what they, what they found when they studied these people's mitochondrial DNA was that there were certain genetic markers that were linked with people developing the disease much more quickly and other people developing the disease much more slowly. So, for instance, people who had the J or the U5A1 haplogroups, as they're known, they developed disease much more quickly than people who carried the H3 gene marker. Now, the only thing that unites these particular markers at the moment is that they seem to affect how much energy cells can make. So the researchers think that in some way the amount of energy that's available in a cell affects the prognosis in HIV. Perhaps it affects how easily the virus can kill the cells. But whether or not that's the key mechanism is less important than the observation itself, because what the researchers are saying is that if we understand how these genes affect the prognosis, then that may give us new avenues to explore for treating HIV. Secondly, we can also give people information about the likely prognosis if they've now caught HIV by doing a genetic test. We can guide them as to how long it might be before they begin to need further medications or they might begin to experience problems. And thirdly, it may also be that there are certain combinations of drugs that work better in certain people with certain ones of these markers than others. And therefore, it will be a useful way marker for us now to begin to understand how drugs interact with HIV and which drugs people with some of these markers should be on. That's really interesting because I've got a similar story but from the world of cancer and this is really the way that medicine's going nowadays is trying to understand 
the the genes that are in someone's well, in a person or maybe in the case of cancer in their tumour and uh, and trying to figure out how best to treat them because it really is increasingly clear that that old saying one size fits all certainly doesn't work when it comes to cancer treatment and the more that we discover about these genetic faults the more it's possible to divide tumours into subgroups which then may in turn respond differently to different treatments and a really good example of this is the breast cancer drug Herceptin because this only works for patients whose tumours have high levels of a molecule called HER2 and now scientists in Edinburgh funded by Cancer Research UK have made an important discovery which could help to improve tailored treatment for breast cancer and they found that a genetic test that's actually already being used in breast cancer patients could predict whether an individual will benefit from certain drugs or not and in fact we could see it becoming standard clinical practice in just a year or two. Now it all boils down to drugs called anthracyclines and there's a very common one called epirubicin and this is a very effective drug for breast cancer but doctors know that it only works in a certain group of patients so you know obviously rings bells going there must be a genetic route to this and also it causes quite bad side effects so you really only want to give it to people if you know it's going to work and not give it to people where it won't work because then they'll have the side effects and none of the benefits and so Professor John Bartlett and his team have been looking at tumour samples from more than two and a half thousand women who've been on clinical trials for epirubicin to try and figure out if there's some genetic thing in common with the ones that respond to the drug and the ones that don't. And in the end, they found that women who had extra copies of chromosome 17, this is known as chromosome 17 duplication, were likely to respond to the treatment. But women with the normal number, that's just two copies, were less likely to respond. And here is where it gets really interesting because this extra dosage of chromosome 17 is already known to be involved in breast cancer because it's the region of our genome that harbours HER2, the gene that makes the protein that responds to Herceptin. And in fact, there's already an effective genetic test to look for duplication of this region because it's how many doctors look to see if you're suitable for Herceptin. So in fact, we've now got the test, we've got the drug, and so they're still waiting for the results of one more big clinical trial to come in to prove whether this is, is really validated in the clinic. But we could actually see this becoming clinical practice very soon. It's fascinating, isn't it, to think that not so long ago people viewed cancer as pretty much a homogeneous condition. You had cancer in a particular organ and we thought that it was the same disease. But if you drill down finely enough, you'll find that every cancer is pretty much unique, isn't it? Absolutely, in the same way that we're all unique. I mean, you can draw cancers into subgroups of, of some types. You know, For example, breast cancer, I think, is now up to maybe even 20 subgroups, yeah, but there's certainly six major subgroups and they all respond slightly differently to treatment. Do you think we'll, we'll ever actually have a clear picture as to what the best way to treat any given cancer is, given that uniqueness? Um, well, I mean, certainly some of the genetic studies have pulled out similar patterns and the idea is that you look for a molecular signature or sort of hallmarks of your cancer and you can go, well, you've got most of these that put you into this profile or most of these that put you into that profile. Um, and in the cases already, we have some drugs that specifically target certain mutations um, in some cancers and they work pretty well. Um, so the hope is there'd be more drugs like that and certainly more genetic tests as well. Thanks, Kat. Well, to another major problem around the world, and that's Giardia. Now, if you've ever had this, then you will definitely know what it is and you won't want it again. But it's a, it's a protozoal, so a miniature parasite cause of 
GI infections. It causes diarrhea, it causes vomiting symptoms, and it causes malabsorption. And it can cause very severe infections in people that don't have access to medical care. So it's a little parasite which has a little flagellum on it, so it has a, a tail that it whips around to make itself move, but it's very easy to catch. It spreads via contaminated water, and when it gets out of the body, it forms this very powerful spore which is inactive, it's very hardy, it's like a husk, and it can survive chemical treatments and all kinds of things which means that it's it's actually very very easy to transmit and that's why it's such a major problem worldwide and in the last few years scientists have worked out what the genetic code is they've sequenced the genome of giardia and this has given a number of clues as to how it's such a successful parasite because ultimately when we do these kind of studies you're looking for ways to treat the thing and one other thing that's emerged is that this virus is like the Joseph of the microbiological world. It has a coat of many colours. If you look in its genome, the virus has got a repertoire of, of nearly 200 genes which code for coat proteins. And the interesting thing is that they only get used singly. So if you look at a bug, it only ever uses one of these genes at a time. So it doesn't have a whole sort of coat of many colours on its surface. It just has a huge genetic wardrobe and it picks out of the wardrobe one particular outfit and wears that. But then its daughters might decide instead to wear a different coat from the outfit, a different outfit from the wardrobe. And scientists just didn't have a clue how this was being achieved. And, and, and also, if we don't understand how it's being achieved, then we can't use it or manipulate it in order to find new ways to treat the bug. But now there's a group of researchers who are based at the Catholic University in Cordoba in Argentina. This is Hugo Lujan and his colleagues. And they've got a paper in uh, Nature this week where they have discovered how this amazing sort of genetic shuffling is achieved. And it uses the same technique that a group of American scientists got the Nobel Prize for discovering a few years ago. And that's RNA interference. Ah, so what, what happens... My favourite... Well, what happens is that this parasite turns on a particular protein coat. It says, right, I'm going to have that red jacket, for example. And then it makes the mirror image genetic sequence of all of the other genes for everything else. And these cancel out the expression of the genes for all the other coats in the cupboard, so none of them get turned on. Now what the scientists need to try and understand is how it does that, and then how it decides one day, I'm going to switch coats and outfits now. And why this is so important is that if it keeps changing its outfit, it keeps changing its appearance, the immune system can't recognise it. And it also, by changing its outfit, gives it the ability to penetrate and invade new environments. So this is an important technique on the part of the bug. It's important that we understand how it works. But now there's an insight. It uses RNA interference to do it, which suggests that we might be able to throw a genetic spanner in that works and find a new way to tackle the parasite. Absolutely, because there'll only be one mechanism by which it's shutting down all these genes. That is really cool. I, lo I love that kind of area of science. It's the area I did my PhD in and I'm still fascinated by it. But now away from the, uh, the biological world, uh, the sort of microbiological world, and to the macrobiological world and elephants. Now everybody loves elephants. They're big, they're kind of cuddly in an elephantine way and they're often a very big attraction in any zoo. But there's been some rather sad news published this week in the journal Science which suggests actually that life in the zoo may not be all that good for them. And researchers from the RSPC along with other colleagues, uh, did a survey of nearly 800 elephants living in zoos and compared them to around 3,000 elephants who either lived wild in the Amboseli National Park in Kenya or were working with loggers in Burma. And the results of this uh, <coughs> mammoth survey were quite shocking. And the African elephants in the National Park lived for around an average of 56 years. And even those that were poached or killed by humans lived for an average of 36 years. But African elephants in the zoos only made it to an average of 17 years old. And we know this is because adults are dying younger, because the death rates are actually similar among baby elephants across the two different populations. And there's two types of elephants in the world, African and Asian elephants. And they looked at Asian elephants too. 
And the team found the same thing. So the, the Asian elephants in Burma, the logging elephants, made it to an average of about 42 years old. But Asian elephants in zoos only live to an average of about 19 years old. And in this case, this was actually due to differences in child survival, well, baby elephant survival. That's really striking, though. But mm. why are we seeing these adults not living so long? Is it diet? Is it lack of exercise? Well, there's a number of things. Um, they think that certainly in the case of the Asian elephants, where you're losing young elephants, that there's probably traumatic events happening while the babies are still in the womb um, because if you capture Asian elephants in the wild and then transfer them to zoos they live longer than elephants born in captivity but in the case of adult elephants the RSPCA think that zoo life basically causes stress and obesity as you can imagine it might be if you're stuck in a cage all the time um, there's also diseases such as herpes tuberculosis lameness and infertility which affect elephants in zoos and they also point the finger at things like stress caused by moving animals between zoos which is something that, that does happen especially if this involves separating mothers and their calves. Now, it's been quite a controversial report. Um, I mean, there were researchers from the, the Royal Zoological Society of London working on this, and it is causing a bit of controversy in the world of zoos. But it does highlight that we need to do a lot more for the welfare of zoo elephants because they're very intelligent animals. And maybe should we be keeping them in zoos at all? It's um, certainly open to debate, but zoos do a lot of good work. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we couldn't improve on the work they're doing. Now, just to finish off and talking about animals, I know you're very fond of dogs and you do a great dog dogs. In, do a great dog impression <laughs> okay that'll do uh, that's reason to pause for thought because scientists showed this week that dogs have the ability to demonstrate jealousy and they did this by repeating an experiment in dogs that has been done in primates monkeys and chimpanzees for example now let me tell you what happens in a monkey if you get two monkeys and you sit them side by side so they can see each other and you ask them to do a task so you can train them to pull a lever or something if every time they do the task one of them gets a reward but the other one doesn't pretty soon the one that goes unrewarded realises that it's getting a bad deal and it refuses to cooperate and it just stops well people wanted to know what would happen if you did the same thing with dogs and so Frederica Ranga, who's a researcher in Austria at the University of Vienna, set up a study where she got pairs of dogs like this and she got them both to put out a paw when the person handling the dog held the hand out, the dog would place its paw on the hand and in response they were given a reward. But then in the second series of trials... One of the dogs got a reward in full view of the other dog, but the first one didn't. And they wanted to see what would happen if they kept doing this. And after a short while, the dog pretty soon gave up the ghost and was not interested. And as she puts it, the dog just laid down and went to sleep and refused to cooperate. And it wouldn't look the instructor in the eye anymore because it knew that it was looking so sorry for itself that um, it, 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 was, it just couldn't understand why it was being so sorely treated and it refused to cooperate. Now, this shows that dogs clearly can size up what the relative rewards of cooperating with other species or with their own species would be. And why this is important is that if you're a social species, humans are social species, Monkeys are a social species, dogs are a social species, they live in packs and groups, for example. In order to facilitate cooperation within those kind of groups, you've got to have some kind of rules by which you share the outcomes. Otherwise, one person takes everything, it's not fair, and some person's hard done by. So you have to have hardwired into you this fact that if you don't get a fair deal, then you stop cooperating. And that's exactly what they're seeing in the dogs. And this shows that it's probably a very uh, primitive aspect of how the brain works and processes this kind of information. And it's that sort of thing that's then fed up the pecking order, evolutionarily speaking. And that's really where we get it from. So if you have two dogs, you've got to be nice to both of them. Absolutely. No, no favouring one over the other. And that goes for children too, as well, of course. <laughs> Thanks, Kat. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. 
Also this week, we hear how the Nigerian government have lost a communications satellite somewhere several miles above the Earth. Christina Scott, African news editor for the Science and Development Network, explains more to naked scientist Mira Senthalingam. Yes, I keep thinking that you're going to find it in, in the lost and found ads. It's a very strange story. As far as we can find out, this is Africa's first communication satellite, by the way, so it's a particularly inauspicious and embarrassing event that they've suffered some kind of energy failure. It's only been running for 18 months. Now, according to Nigeria's Minister of State for Science and Technology, who's Al-Hassan Zaku, he says the solar panels have malfunctioned. I think that there's been a catastrophic failure of leadership. We have been unable to find any evidence that the satellite has done what it was supposed to do. Well, what was the satellite originally supposed to do and when was it actually launched? The satellite was launched from China in 2007 because there isn't a place on the African continent to launch satellites at all. And it might actually be the victim of sort of overhyped expectations because they said it's going to bridge the digital divide, rural communities will be linked to urban areas, will be able to use telemedicine for the doctors, will be able to do long-distance learning for the students, and there were also very significant commercial goals for people wanting to use the internet and emails because about 85% of all internet usage on the continent of Africa does not use the cables that are normal everywhere else in the world, almost all of our internet usage goes through satellites, which is why it's slow and incredibly expensive. So now what's happened is that the Nigerian government has spent 240 million US dollars on the satellite. It's entirely government owned. It's one of those geostationary satellites that's supposed to stay in one place above the earth as the earth rotates. And it was supposed to work for 15 years. Unfortunately, it went down after 18 months. So this happened um, a few weeks ago now. What's the current situation and what are they doing to fix it? They're doing very little to fix it. They basically said that internet service providers would be moved to other satellites. And they've also said that you shouldn't really worry too much about what happens to the satellite because it's been insured. It's going to be interesting to see what happens because... There's been a lot of pressure on a number of countries in Africa to join the space race, so to speak. I find actually that space science in Africa is a really fraught field, and I promise to find more about it and get back to you with an update on what's happening with the amazing Nigerian missing satellite. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. This Naked Scientist News Flash featured Chris Smith, Kat Arney, Christina Scott and Mira Senthalingam and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you've enjoyed the News Flash, why not check out the weekly Naked Scientist podcast featuring news, interviews with top scientists, your questions and a kitchen science experiment for you to try out at home. We'll be back with another roundup of hot science news next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.